Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. This morning we are in verse 5 through 7. As we continue our foundation series, we're laying a foundation, we're building a foundation. The Lord's blessed our church with growth, with, with diverse growth, people different backgrounds. We're laying a foundation, discovering what the Bible teaches, understanding what we believe. And sometimes we appeal to great works of art, of cinema, one of the greatest of which came out in 1995 by the filmmaker Pixar, by the title of Toy Story. In that, in that movie, now spoiler alert, okay, they make it back. Uh, it's been 27 years, so if you've not seen it yet, I don't owe you anything in terms of protecting any kind of thematic secrecy or whatever. In that movie, the main character, Woody, the doll, the, the toy, who belongs to Andy, has Andy's name written on his boot. He's the only toy with Andy's name written on his boot until birthday, Andy's birthday, and mom brings in Buzz Lightyear, a new toy. And Andy writes his name actually with the correct N. On Woody's boot, the N is backwards because he was younger. On Buzz Lightyear, now he's grown up and he writes his name appropriately on his boot. This, this causes Woody some intense jealousy because Woody believed that he was Andy's favorite toy. And there was great, there was, there was great security for Woody in knowing that he belonged to Andy. That, that's kind of the theme of, of, of really of the whole series was we belong to Andy. We are Andy's toys. And Woody specifically wore that badge of honor, the name of Andy on his boot, and that brought him a great deal of security. But in his jealousy, he, actually, he, he knocks Buzz Lightyear out of the window and they're getting ready to move. The, the, the family's getting ready to move. They're packing up, and Woody accidentally knocks Buzz Lightyear out the window. All the other toys accuse him of mutiny. You've done this on purpose because you hate Buzz Lightyear. So, boom, Woody goes on a rescue mission. They wind up in Sid's house, and then it becomes this great adventure of getting back to their owner, get, working their way back to their master. You know, I, I don't want to give Pixar any credit for knowing and then somehow trying to communicate the gospel, but I give all credit to God that he works things out. He, he weaves it in in his sovereignty, that he weaves the gospel into, into this message here. And I think that unwittingly, Pixar accidentally uh, told us the story of the gospel, at least as it relates to what we're going to see today uh, of this idea that you belong to someone, that you've got his name, and that someday there's going to be this reunion and, and, and that knowledge of that you've been called to belong should cause us to have security and should motivate us. It wasn't until Buzz Lightyear uh, looked at his boot 
and realized that Andy had written his name on his boot too. That Buzz Lightyear came up out of his depression and said, let's go, Let, let's get back, let's, let's do what we were made to do, Let, let's, let's get back to our master, amen? Boy, if only Paul could look out to 1995, <laughs> he might write about Woody and Buzz Lightyear to the Romans. Let's read here. I actually want to read verses 1 through 7 because it's really just a one continuous thought here. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to come into your presence to worship you, to give of our tithes and offerings, to give our hearts and our minds attention. I pray, Lord, that you would bless as we hear your word and then as we go out and live it. And Father, I pray that you would bless uh, safe families of the Quad Cities. Thank you for their time this morning. I thank you for the Phelps family and for their commitment to uh, be host families. I pray that you would raise up more from this church, that we would uh, receive the neediest, the, the most needy in our community, into our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So, so Paul is recognizing, he's establishing who he is and, and why these people should listen to him. And he says that the calling of grace and apostleship came through Jesus Christ our Lord. He, he would say elsewhere that he wasn't taught by other men, but rather Jesus Christ himself called him out and gave him apostleship. Now, he says grace and apostleship, but I really think that it means gracious apostleship or the grace of apostleship. I agree with F.F. F. Bruce, who understands that Paul is saying, we have received the grace of apostleship. Now, now, why do we think that? Romans 12, 6. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Right? So, so Paul is talking to the body. Each one of us, every Christian, every member of the body has a gift that, that we're called to use, a spiritual gift, a, a calling, something that we should do for the Lord. And that gift is a gift of grace. It's a grace that the Lord gives to you and to me and to Paul. And again in 15, 5, and 6, Paul says about himself, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That's another way of saying apostle. So he's a minister to the Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul recognized it as a gift of grace. And so I, I again, I agree with F.F. F. Bruce that, he, that Paul is saying, through whom we have received 
the grace or the gift of apostleship. Now he says, we have received. You got a mouse in your pocket, Paul? Who are you talking about? So some people think, well, he's talking about himself and maybe Timothy who was with him and, and maybe some others that were part of his team. But usually when Paul writes in the first person plural, i.e. we, when he writes in first person plural, he's usually referring to himself alone. Now why would he do that? I, 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 have you ever noticed whenever a politician wins the election, they don't stand up behind the podium and say, I did it! I won! I mean, the reality is that he won or she won, right? What do they say instead? We won! We won! Right? He wants, that politician, he or she wants to share the, share the credit. He wants to be humble. Right? He wants to be humble. I think that Paul is wanting to be humble. I think he's saying, we receive the grace of apostleship. Because he would not dare say, I receive the grace of apostleship, because he just wants to, in the most humble way possible, he has, to he has to identify himself as the authoritative figure over the Gentiles. That's what Jesus has called him to. And yet he does so in the most humble way possible. We have received the grace of apostleship. Paul recognizes that he is who he is because God is who God is, infinitely gracious. That's one of the themes of Romans is God's amazing, infinite, unending, inexhaustible, incomprehensible grace. And I think that Paul is saying, everything is from God. Everything's from God. Everything that's good about me, everything that I'm doing, it's all about God. It's all from Him. The gospel came from Him. I came from Him. The calling came from Him. It's all from God. I deserve no credit. I think that's Paul's heart. And the purpose of him receiving the grace of apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Now, whose name? Paul's name? Absolutely not. It's not for the sake of Paul's name, but rather for the sake of Jesus' name, his mission. Paul's mission in life, his, his essence, was to make the name of Jesus famous, to make it known around the world. And not just to be known, but known in authority, that people would come to obedience of faith. Now, that's an interesting coupling of words obedience of faith. Paul wrote to the Galatians that we're not saved by works of the law, but through faith. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, that's another way of saying obedience. People are not justified by obedience, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Right, so, so how do we reconcile this? We, we're not saved, we're not justified by obedience, and yet here Paul says obedience of faith. Well, simply put, what Paul is talking about here is obedience that is based on faith in Christ. There's two elements to obedience of faith, and we have to be careful not to separate them. It's like two sides of the same coin. 
Paul is going to appeal to both belief, which is what usually we would call faith. He's going to appeal to both belief and obedience in his letter, in this letter. He says in in chapter 6, verses 11 through 18, that obedience, that true obedience, comes from a heart for God, not simple behavior modification. That, that real obedience, right, what do, we, what do we, parents, what do we say to our kids? All the way, right away with a happy heart. That, that's what obedience is, right? Anything short of that is not obedience. So, so begrudgingly following through is not really obedience, right? Now, we might accept it in the moment, but that's not the goal. That's not the objective. That's not the standard. The standard is all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Same way, that's what Paul says, obedience to the Lord involves a happy heart. Uh, even if it's something hard that we don't want to do, we do it because we love Him. So obedience comes from the heart. Genuine salvation motivates obedience. Genuine salvation motivates obedience. And then in Acts 10, 16 and 17, he indicates, Paul indicates that faith in the gospel is obedience to the gospel. So we have this, this changed heart. There's a, there's a obedience comes from, from faith, and faith is obedience. So there's two sides to this coin. We have to be sure that we don't separate them and distinguish them. Al Mohler comments, Ongoing obedience is the outworking of our salvation. Ongoing obedience is the outworking of our salvation. It's not a subsequent thing, a consequence of faith. It is faith in its concrete expression. What does genuine saving faith look like? Obedience. Obedience to Jesus. In the words of Paul to the Philippians, it is working out our salvation. Here's what he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for. He does not say strive to achieve your salvation. He says work out your salvation. What we be- when we believe, when we come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, our lives are changed. Our lives are changed. It's inconceivable that a person is born again by the Spirit of God and habitually refuses to obey Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle John said. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, just before that, John says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So what is John talking about? He's talking about a habitual, hard heart where, where the Word confronts, other believers, fellow believers, brothers and sisters confront, 
and, and that person, that believer, remains steadfast in their sin. That's why Jesus, in church discipline, says if you, take, if you go to someone one-on-one and you tell them how they have sinned against you, and, and it's not your preference or, or your opinion or, or they've hurt your sensibilities, but they've sinned against you, and you show them in Scripture that it's sin, and they don't repent, then you bring two or three more people and you tell them, hey, look, these, we all agree, you're in sin. And if they still don't repent, then you bring it to the church and you, you put these, this person to sin in front of the church and the church says, stop sinning. And they still sin. Jesus says, treat them as if they're a non-believer. Why? Because the greatest evidence that you're saved is that you obey Jesus. And when confronted in sin, you obey to the point of repentance. You say, you're right, I agree, that is sin, and I'm going to turn with your help and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, put it very simply, we can't argue with the words of Jesus in John 14, if you love me, you will obey me. That's what Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Obedience of faith. Now, this whole thing, all of what Paul has described, all of this, the gospel that was promised through the prophets, the, the gospel that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the gospel that was delivered to Paul, he was set apart to take the gospel to all the nations, is for the sake of his name, Jesus. Not Paul, but Jesus, for the sake of his name. Jesus is glorified every time a sinner is saved. God, God loves when a sinful person recognizes sin, receives the free gift of eternal life. He delights in that. He's not begrudging. We're, you know, he's, not, he's not stingy with grace. He's generous with grace. And Jesus is glorified. It's for the sake of his name. Now, lest we spend too much time on way up here in generalities with the nations. Paul brings it back down to the individual level. He said in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is for the nations. Uh, Dr. Todd Aaron came here back in March and gave us the acronym THUMB. Tribes, Hindus, and he says the you, you have to turn sideways, Chinese, Muslims, and Buddhist. This represents the, 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 the bulk of the unreached people groups around the world, those five things. This is where we ought to be focusing our, our mission, taking the gospel to the nations, thumb, tribes, Hindus, Chinese, Muslims, and Buddhists, the 1040 window, where most people that have never heard of Jesus dwell, the 1040 window. The gospel is for giving your life to taking the message to these people, to all the nations, but it's also for you. It's also for you. It is for far and wide. It's also for near to your heart and close to home. It's for you. It's for the children that you welcome into your home. 
It is for your spouse. It is for your own kids. It's for your parents. It's for your friends. It's for your, your buddies at the gym. It's for your hairstylist. It's for the cashier that is wiping away a tear and turning, trying to put on a happy face to welcome you into her line or his line. The gospel is for the nations, but it's also for you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now that word called is a divine call. The word means called by God. You're called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul says every believer is called out of the world, out of bondage, out of death, and out of sin, and into Christ and into his body. So Paul's not the only one called. I, he, he uses this word about himself. In verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He has been called out. And there's no distinction between Paul's salvation and his call to apostleship. It all happened at the same time. They're on the road to Damascus. So he was called out. When you're called, when you're called to Jesus, when you're saved, you are also purposed. There's, there's no, okay, well, I've got a calling, I've got salvation, and then at some point, maybe Jesus then subsequently hands me a purpose. No, he calls you out of the world and into himself and into his body and gives you a gift and gives you a calling. You've been called. Paul's not the only one. You and I are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word there is possessive. It, to belong the way that, that you would associate possession. So just as my vehicle belongs to me, and I have exclusive rights to it, and I have responsibility for it, so you and I are Christ's possession. You and I, like Paul, are servants of Jesus Christ, or to put it more appropriately, slaves. This is what Paul called himself, Paul, a servant. Now, I, I just think that the ESV waters it down. The word is doulos, and doulos means slave, always, in every context. We are slaves. When you and I were dead in sin, Jesus says that we were slaves to sin. Some of you think, well, I don't want to be a slave of Christ. Well, the reality is that you, you, you are a slave to sin, and when you're saved, you're released from slavery to sin, and you're yoked to Jesus. Now, the difference is that when you're enslaved to sin, that is death. And when you're yoked to Jesus, it's life but it doesn't diminish the fact that you and I are slaves to Christ. We are His possession. You are called to belong to Christ. John MacArthur teases this out almost to the point of absurdity in order to, in order to sort of highlight the disparity between biblical faithfulness, what is the essence of being a follower of Christ, and what is say, a, a, an average evangelical 
invitation. He, he draws this out almost to the point of absurdity. He says, Here, here's, the, here's kind of the biblical invitation to follow Christ. He says, I would like to invite you to become a slave of Jesus Christ. I would like to invite you to give up your independence, give up your freedom, submit yourself to an alien will, abandon all your rights, be owned by, controlled by the Lord. He says, that's the gospel. That's the invitation. Now, Pastor Brown, are you sure that that's really what Paul is talking about? Because that doesn't sound like my commitment that I made. What I thought was I was getting a whole bunch of stuff. I was getting everything. And what you're saying is that I'm, that I'm giving. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting eternal life, but I'm, I'm having to give my, my, myself to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.22, For the one who was called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed person. In other words, there's this great reversal and and in a very real sense, even if they're not set free from slavery, they're free in Christ. But watch this. Likewise, the one who was called as free is what? I'll let you say it. Is what? Say it one more time. Christ's slave. The word is doulos. It always means slave. Now, I notice New American Standard Bible. Why did I do that? I hate using multiple translations. Because it's most accurate. Because the ESV refuses to say slave. What does it say? What does the ESV say? It says bondservant. Uh, you know, not having grown up in a culture of, of slavery and, and, and bondservants, bondservant sounds a lot better than slave. Bondservant sounds a lot like Jeffrey from A Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> kind of snarky, kind of able to come and go as he pleases, somewhat able to live his own life, but generally speaking, there to serve that family. Slave, in every culture throughout all of history, has always meant Total subjugation, total ownership, and total control. Now we see similar language in Revelation. This, this was interesting to me because once again I read the ESV and I see servants. And servants has a, has a nobility, right? There's something special. Yeah, I'm a servant of the Lord. I, I read in Revelation in, in, in the intro I think it was the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates uh, the word slave when he introduces that this is the message, Jesus said, this is the message that I want to give my slaves through my slave John. And in Revelation 24, we see that, that Jesus' people are marked on their forehead with the name of the Lamb. Look, slaves get marked. That's ownership. Now, trust me, on that day, you will want the, the mark, the name of God on your forehead. Because only those who have the, 
mark of God on their forehead will be received into the kingdom. Only those that belong to him. Go back to that movie Toy Story. Woody. Was it a hardship for Woody to be marked by Andy? No. It was a great comfort. Total security. I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know that I am a prized possession. And not just a possession, but a responsibility. Because you belong to Jesus, he's never going to give you up. Jesus said, it is the will of the Father that I should not lose any that he has given to me. It is God's will. And Jesus is perfectly able to execute God's will. There is zero chance that he will fail in this regard. It is God's will that those who belong to Jesus will be preserved forever, will be protected, will be raised again. Like the sheep of the good shepherd, Jesus knows you, protects you, loves you, keeps you, feeds you, draws you, and he says, come and take my burden. My burden's light. My yoke is easy. Oh, what the, the blessing to belong to Jesus. Amen? In verse 7, Paul wraps, uh, wraps up the salutation. He says, to, those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, I just want to ask you, is that how you conceive of your identity in Christ? Beloved? Saints? The New Testament calls all Christians, contrary to the Roman Catholic doctrine, the New Testament calls all Christians saints. I appreciated last year one of our guys came to me and said, Pastor Brian, why are you calling Christ's people sinners? And you know, for me, it was hyperbole, but it was ignorant. He's right, and I've changed. Because the, he, he went to the Word, he said, look, the New Testament calls Christians saints. And sinners are those who are outside of Christ, that need to come into Christ, that need to be saved. But once you are in Christ, brother and sister, you have been made a saint. Do you grasp that? Do you recognize that reality? You've not been made a saint. You've not, you've not been called, let me put it like this, you've not been called because you're a saint. You've been made a saint because you were called. It's all about Jesus. It's all about grace. You didn't do any of it. You didn't deserve it. And yet you can't change it. 
You are a saint. And brother and sister, you are loved by God. Oh, pastor, you don't know me. You don't know the meditations of my mind, the tone and the tenor of my words. You don't know the glances of my eyes, the thoughts of my mind, the works of my hands. No. It's you that don't know yourself. You have been made a saint. Saint means sanctified one, set apart one, holy one. And you've been called out by God, by His grace, and you have been given the righteousness of Jesus. Do you not know that in Christ you are a new creation? The old has passed away and the new has come. The Bible tells us that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Have been. Now, how do I explain that? I, I can't explain that. There's a tension in the New Testament. You have been set with Christ in the heavenly places. You are more than conquerors. You are bought with a price. You are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. You are made righteous. You are valued. You are loved, church. You are loved. So act like it. That, and that was Woody's point to Buzz. Buzz is over there having a bad day, drowning in depression, thinking that his life is going to end with Sid doing uh, trans, uh, transplants, you know, making, making Frankenstein toys out of, out of him. And he thought, man, I'm, my life is just terrible. I got no purpose. This is, my, this is the end. And Woody goes, and I'm not quoting it, not that good. Shape up, Buzz. You got Andy's name on your boots. He loves you, he treasures you. Let's go. Live as if you're marked, church. Live as if you bear the mark of Christ. Covered by the blood. And one day, you'll stand before Jesus with his name on your forehead, knowing that you belong to this wonderful, merciful, gracious Savior. What you need to know is not so much about yourself, but about this wonderful Savior who was sent so that we might say with Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, brothers and sisters. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve anything good that comes to us. Everything that we have is a gift of His grace. And when we experience God's unmerited favor and our sins are washed away, a river of peace floods into our soul. This peace that comes from God is not like the peace that the world gives, Jesus said. 
You see, the world gives peace, but only in the absence of conflict. So we can have peace talks, and we can have peace from war, only so far as the enemies restrain from combat. And you can have marital peace, according to the world, as long as you get your way. And you can have financial peace as long as you have more than you want. But the peace that God gives comes whether we're in the storm or not, and it's felt most palpably in the storm. Perhaps you've experienced that yourself. It's the calm assurance that even though you face the gale storm winds of the storm, your boat, your ship is going to hold together because it's being held in the hands of Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, church, I want you to imagine what it would be like if every Christian thought like Paul. If every born-again follower of Christ reckoned his life as no value at all and said, here we are, I'm going to lay down my life as a living sacrifice I'm going to unite my time, treasures, and talents with those around me in the church that God has put me in, and together from a posture of slavery, we're going to say, here we are, Lord, use us, send us. And every last one of us recognize that the greatest purpose of our life is the mission of Jesus Christ. You know, in all the advancement of humanity, God's mission has not changed. God's mission in the world is still to seek and to save that which is lost. And if all of us, if this church was full of of, of believers who said, I'm a slave of Christ, it's not what I want, it's only what Jesus wants, and my greatest purpose is to take the gospel to the nations, knowing that I am beloved that I've got my name, I've got the name of Jesus written on my forehead, that I've been called to belong. Imagine what that church could do. We know that we belong to Jesus because he poured out his blood for us on the cross. We know that we belong to Jesus, that he loves us because he died for us. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to anyone that has ears to hear, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. It is the blood of Jesus that makes us clean and whole and pure. We remember Jesus' sacrifice when we observe communion. Now, Paul gave a warning, and I want to invite the the worship team to come back as we give you an opportunity to reflect and meditate and hear the warning of Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus, uh, blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. My question for you is, how do you eat and drink in an unworthy manner? I think there's a lot of ways Paul was dealing with people that would come and get drunk and would feast on the bread 
without, without any deference or any, any uh, concern for other people. But, but I think that, that the heart there was that they did so disconnecting this act that we're about to do from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They, they were apathetic towards that. They consumed the, the Lord's Supper without any commitment to live for Jesus, to obey Jesus. It, I, want you to, I want you to think about this. If, if your posture is, I don't want to be a slave of Christ, then you drink the blood of Jesus symbolically and eat the body, and you're saying, you're saying Jesus, I'll accept your sacrifice, your God in the flesh, I'll accept your sacrifice for me, and I will make none for you. I think you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Or perhaps some of you are here harboring bitterness or anger. You have no desire to forgive. You have no desire to, uh, to deal with what's going on in your heart. And you drink in an unworthy manner. This is a time for us to repent. We don't have to walk a thousand miles. We just have to say, okay, Lord, I repent. You're right. This is sin. Forgive me my sin and receive my worship. Amen? Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, that you search our hearts and know us and show if there's, if there's any grievous way in us and help us be willing, Lord, to, to lay that down and to repent. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.